Reproductive loss, including miscarriage, infertility, and the loss of young children, weaves its path of destruction throughout the Torah. The first human parents, Adam and Eve, are rocked by the death of their younger son, Abel, who is killed by their firstborn, Cain, the first child born to this world. Abraham, the first Jewish man, is coerced into giving his son Ishmael up, relinquishing his status as parent. Sarah, the first Jewish woman, is unable to conceive until the age of 90, and when she finds out, she belly laughs right into the face of God's messenger. When her son is nearly murdered, her own death is hastened. The next generation sees Rebecca, who struggles through a pregnancy that leaves her begging for her life to just be over. Torah bears witness to families as they struggle through infertility and through mourning grown children. If you're trying to figure out how reproductive loss fits into the arc of death and dying of our season, remember that we just finished talking about preparing the dead for burial. Our next episode will be about burial. But these moments of our stories that are just too much, too big to tell, this is the work of this project. To lose a baby, or to feel grief after an abortion, or to be perpetually praying and working to get pregnant, these are the spaces of in-betweenness and of suffering without end. Between a being and could have been, between grief and anticipation, between the lines of stories that we tell out in the open. Today we'll begin to hold the stories of reproductive loss and all the in-betweenness that it brings. I'm Ariana Katz, and this is Kaddish. So what is reproductive loss? So many things can be reproductive loss. We talk a little bit about miscarriage and stillbirth. Um, infertility is a deep loss. Uh, SIDS, infant death, but also, right, the death of a toddler, the death of a child, a death of a child at any age. And then I think that it's important then to allow space for the non-traditional narratives. So um, people that have had a failed adoption, um, so many other ways that we we see this loss, like people who are ju- who decided not to have children, didn't have children, and grieve the loss of what may have been. These stories that sit in the doorway between life and death, or at the starting point of the circle of living and dying and living and dying, I offer you two episodes on this theme. Next, we'll hear from Naomi Leaphart, an organizer, educator, and religious leader. This week, we begin with Jackie Morton. I am a mom, I'm a full-spectrum doula, I'm a writer, and I've created this thing called Holding Our Space. Jackie hasn't been a doula her entire life. She was moved to it and to the creation of the organization Holding Our Space through her own experience of reproductive loss. Interestingly, the pregnancy that I lost was one that happened very quickly. once my husband and I thought we might be ready for a second child. So I had my my first son in 2009, and 
finished graduate school in 2011, and within a, probably a month of finishing, I was pregnant for the second time. And so I was just like so surprised and shocked to have had it happen so quickly that I almost sort of felt something might be wrong. Um, I just didn't feel quite right in my pregnancy and couldn't put words to that feeling. But when I went for my first prenatal visit, which was at nine weeks, uh, everything looked fine to the midwife that I saw. The ultrasound looked fine. Still, Jackie was almost 35 years old, so the midwife recommended she also have some additional testing. I scheduled the ultrasound. It was the very end of my first trimester. And in that time, I really bonded with my pregnancy, and we were at the beach with, you know, my almost two-year-old, and it was really a time of, like, I think really trying to make everything okay, but yet feeling this sort of dread. And then when we had the day of the ultrasound, the doctor saw large abnormalities. Um, We had genetic testing that day through the procedure known as CVS, um, which also carries its own risk of miscarriage. So then I kind of just like prayed for a couple days. But Jackie didn't miscarry. She got the test results, and it turned out her baby had a genetic disorder called trisomy 18. Babies with trisomy 18 have severe physical and intellectual disabilities and often heart defects. Less than 10% survive a year. At first I thought, oh, this must be so rare, but really it's normally that just that these pregnancies don't don't survive even that long. Um, so we, we waited for some confirmation of the results, and we just did a lot of research and a lot of crying and um, determined really that it wasn't a viable option for us to try to bring that baby into the world. We terminated the pregnancy. I went to Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, I say that because I think it's a lot different now than it was then. I think they've made some changes, but we did, like, drive by the protesters. Obviously, the whole thing, I can't say bizarre, the whole thing was just a nightmare. But then to realize that, I don't know, it just didn't seem like I was able to find any real comfort through the actual procedure. And I regret that 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 became something that I grieved deeply once I finally grieved. This is pointing at an issue in the reproductive justice movement, where in the 70s, to say that one could experience grief after an abortion was to sell out the movement. The fight for legal abortion coverage was so dire that to admit its difficulties on an individual would propel anti-choice activists to claim that people who had abortions always regretted them. But now we're seeing more space, for someone to say, I am making this choice because it is the right choice and I am profoundly grief-stricken because of it. I'd like to think that there could be more opportunity to say that every human being deserves the right to choose when and if and how to parent that every person could be afforded resources to help parent children. But we're afraid of what might come when we say we need spiritual resources to make the choice to terminate a pregnancy, or that there is an emotional and spiritual life that can respond with relief or joy or grief and the need for comfort. 
And I think that giving people tools to deal with how they feel after an abortion is really important without the, the, the like, this is guilt and shame and this is how you should feel. That's not okay. And mm, then why can't we separate it from why can't they go to church if that's where they need to go and receive the nourishment that they're spirit needs after having an abortion, which was, like you say, the right choice for whatever circumstance that it was necessary. Um, Like, I don't understand why we can't just really trust humanity in making these decisions for themselves and seeking whatever kind of spiritual follow-up. I've come to know many people who have, unfortunately, lost babies and even though this was an abortion and I went to an, basically an abortion clinic and had an abortion, um, I came to know her as a baby that I carried. There are the moments of death and the echoes that surround them, freeze them in time. Sometimes it takes years to process the grief of a reproductive loss. It came in stages and I think it, it will continue. I did get pregnant so quickly after. Grief comes and it goes. It returns when we think it's gone. Things were perhaps intensified by Jackie's next pregnancy, which both distracted her from her loss and reminded her of it at the same time. His pregnancy was very challenging and um, in the beginning I went through all the testing again and they they were concerned about something that they saw with his bodily development in my early ultrasound. So my pregnancy with, with William became another crisis time for me and I think I put my grief aside completely um, and just focused on my anxiety. Um, getting through, dealing with my anxiety is what I should say. Um, But I I know I had moments of grief in that time, so I could call them, like, very elusive. I think in in overtime, my grief has become known to me as this sort of, like, uh, snail that coils back and protrudes forward. When her second child, William, turned three, Jackie realized that she had been ignoring her grief of her lost pregnancy for a while. I had access some services, right? Like, I go to therapy. I had gone to therapy, although I had stopped during the pregnancy. I went back very soon after. So I was in therapy my whole then pregnancy with Will. Um, but I, don't, I never named this thing. So it was an abortion, it was a termination for medical reasons, it was the loss of a wanted pregnancy, it was this very unknown thing, like un, unspoken. Um, and so I finally did some real processing of that. I had done some writing along the way. I had definitely done some writing. It was the only way to really get through. Um, but then I finally gave her a name and found the words, my baby, and um, began to honor that that life that did pass through my life. And, um, and, then, and then found ways to try to connect with others and create spaces that would have been safe for me. 
where I would have felt safe but never felt drawn to because there was no invitation for me. Sari Wilson wrote the following on miscarriages for Mother Magazine just last month. It's an open secret how many women have had miscarriages. No one will tell you this, though, until you have had one yourself. You find out your grandmother had a number of miscarriages. Your friends reveal that they have had one, two, three, or more miscarriages. Your dental hygienist reveals through her mask that she has had multiple miscarriages. You feel closer to her than anyone else in the world at that moment. How could you not have known this? That the world is filled with this disappearance of possible futures? Reproductive loss is something that is just um, built into our our bones as people of just this is how we move forward. And, um, and so it feels weak. I mean, right? Sometimes I feel like silly or um, why are you even talking about that? You have your two beautiful children. And it's true. And so, uh, but something inside of me tells me that it's okay once in a while to feel sad. And even if that's the moment in which I'm able to connect with somebody else that may have not had the message that it's okay to feel sad, even though you're raising your two beautiful children. And we say that to each other, right? It's true. You have to be strong. I mean, we give people that message. You have to be strong for this. When we grieve the dead... We know the steps, which are often funeral, burial, community brings a casserole dish, and we go into a year of mourning. When we grieve the loss of a pregnancy, the rules are just different. What kind of funeral feels right for the family? What does communal mourning look like? Jewish rabbinic law is full of debate on when life begins, be it after birth or after eight days or at viability. Based on those opinions, how does that change the rituals afforded to parents? Losing a wanted pregnancy throws off all the rules about what to expect as a mourner and what to need out of ritual to mark it. I have several um, rituals. It's sort of part of my life. So sometimes it's lighting a candle that's specific for her. I gave her the name Nina. I wasn't sure I could name her because I hadn't met her, um, and I always wanted to name a girl Nina or Sylvia. So I named her Nina, and I and gave her a middle name Rose, which is a great aunt I have. And I have some rose earrings that I wear sometimes in her honor. Um, I try to do random acts of kindness while I'm out in the world, and I do those things with my sons, too. I do small rituals. It's really, um, it's really become, it, it, it never felt right to have a, a, a memorial or a ceremony. I was raised Catholic, so in terms of my own faith, I didn't immediately see a way to do this in the traditional ways that I had understood that had comforted me as a child, I was completely unsettled. And I actually had gone to a mass three days after my abortion was the 10th year 
of the anniversary of my grandfather's death, and that was a really big loss for me. Um, and he died in September of 2001, actually, from leukemia. Marking time unifies what feels like disparate and out-of-control moments in grief. Marking the days on the calendar, showing that time does in fact pass, but no, it's not been as long as it feels. No, it's not as immediate as it feels. Jackie marks the dates of her pregnancy with Nina. September 22nd is the date of my anniversary, my loss anniversary. And March 31st is the date of that um, was her expected due date. So usually on March 31st, I will plant something outside, do some nice things in nature. And then on September 22nd, I really ramp up my kindness in the world and just try to do good things for other people. I think you have to figure out what works in your life and your, again, experience. So I didn't deliver this baby. I didn't hold her. I don't have her buried somewhere. It's just a quiet relationship that I have now with her in my soul. To say the mourner's prayer, the mourner's Kaddish, one needs a quorum of at least ten people. Of the specific set of prayers that one cannot recite without community, the mourner's Kaddish is one of them. Like Sari Wilson said, it's an open secret how many women have had miscarriages. The need to mark loss at all necessitates a community holding us as we fall apart. But for an open secret like reproductive loss, it can be hard, near impossible, to find community for a silent story. I started to kind of be more awake, of course, to reproductive justice issues. I mean, I became a doula after my own experiences anyway, and then just found that people didn't have the right kinds of spaces and wanted to try to create more of that. And I fully kind of articulated this when I applied for a grant from an organization called the Abortion Conversation Project. And then through talking with one of the board members while I was planning my proposal and working on it, um, it really became clear that what I wanted to create was a space for reproductive loss that would be inclusive of all types of grief, of all reproductive experiences. And so Jackie created Holding Our Space. Holding Our Space, really, it has come to feel like space for feelings and um, just bringing that a little bit into our everyday world. So first I created a Tumblr page because I wanted to kind of place a uh, make a place on the internet that's sort of a little bit of an altar and can be kind of um, an artistic space for moments and thoughts and pictures. Part of what Holding Our Space hosts online are poems and stories written by users who have experienced reproductive loss. It's an online altar. It's a writing into being. This is one of them. This is for baby Sandy, the one who got away. Today, you would have been old enough to drink, old enough to be finishing college, old enough to have a baby of your own. In so many ways, it's better that you're not. But I still remember 
who you could have been. With her grant, Jackie was able to create a physical sanctuary for reproductive loss as well. She brought a community of mourners together in her hometown for a several day long workshop. In my own town, in the suburbs, I found this spiritual center that used to be a church. And they were very open to my idea of like wanting to create a community space over a couple, a couple days uh, for people to just be able to come and go and have activities that people could do that kind of just gave them a quiet moment and something to do with their hands or some space to just sit and cry. And we created a, an altar. Um, we had candles for people to light. We made a, a mural on the wall, some pretty flowers, and people just wrote various meaningful things to them, words or names or dates. We started the two days with a yoga session led by another abortion doula and registered yoga teacher, Brenda Hernandez, and she continues to do that class, restorative yoga for reproductive loss and infertility in the Boston area. And then at the end of this two days, we held a ceremony, and that was facilitated by Sarah Whedon, who's a full-spectrum doula and pagan priestess. So part of what I had done was try to take input um, and create a space that would be welcoming of different experiences and backgrounds. And that's that's what we did in June. My hope is that holding our space could become representative of each community. And so that in that way, it becomes an important space for the community to just come together around this loss in a way that's non-exclusionary um, for people that want that connection or to want to be able to say it out loud, to not speak about loss as parents is doing a disservice to the children we go on to raise. And, um, and as a society, to not speak about loss isn't honoring the experiences of every member of our society. It's a connection point we all lose. Reproductive loss is very common, but broader than that, right? This is what called me to do right now. But broader than that, this is about grief and space for grief and validating our emotions as a people. Reproductive loss is that silent story that grief seemingly too big to bear sometimes. If grief is something we perpetually carry on our backs, sometimes heavier as we trudge through the winter, sometimes lighter, gently holding on as we dance and swirl, then reproductive loss is something that we carry in our arms, hold between doorways, in the in-between spaces. In the next few weeks, we'll be sharing an episode with Naomi Leaphart as she talks about reproductive loss as a queer issue and about infertility and reproductive loss. In these days where many of us are kindling light to bring comfort and warmth into the coldness of winter, may these stories bring light to the grief stories we don't always get to tell. If you want to share your story of reproductive loss with the Kaddish community, you can call 240-KADDISH 
and we'll create a listener episode. As always, I am so grateful for our listeners and the brilliant Kaddish team. Thank you so much to Jackie Morton, JJ Tan, Katie Briner and Everhanna, Tiny Victor for the music, Chelsea Noriega, Sid Weissman, Alex Stern, our fearless Kaddish producer. This episode is dedicated to Nina and all the memories that we hold gently in our arms. I'm Ariana Katz, and this is Kaddish.